0: Hey guys and welcome to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. The first podcast to bring you the local fishing report for Alabama's lakes and rivers whether it's good, bad, or ugly. I'm your host Nick Williams and this week's show is brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Are you frustrated by your typical hunting and fishing magazines? Are you tired of reading content meant for guys up north or in the Midwest? Don't get left behind following the guidance of guys who don't hunt and fish in your home state. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and become a better southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Books-A-Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com all righty guys welcome back to another week of the alabama freshwater fishing report excited about today's show we got some good guests coming and leading the pack we got steve graziano the Graz at grazes guide service out on lake Follow. how you doing today brother hey nick
1: i appreciate you having me
0: absolutely always enjoy talking to you
1: just got back from a trip down there was uh, practicing basically for a guide trip tomorrow got a two-day guide trip coming up back to back repeat customers so just want to put them on some fish and uh, actually went down and fished south we put in at white oak and uh it's Pretty interesting. I hadn't been down there that much this year, but I decided to go down there. And uh, the uh, south end fish is a little different than the north end, in other words, above the bridges. And so you have to treat it as such because the further you get closer to the dam, you know, the contours change. And the uh, fish can be in a little deeper water down there also. So it's a a challenge sometimes if you don't go down there enough to, to figure it out. But I'm glad... Glad we went down there. Yeah. Well, how'd uh, how'd y'all do today? We found some spots spotted bass. We found them, and we caught some largemouth also. And we we changed up uh, some of our presentations that we've been doing north. And we got we got the old drop shot out. Seemed to be the. Uh, winter presentation today so that was interesting we tried a different bait and it did pretty good with us we got off the uh straight worm you know what i mean a lot of times you throw the worm the morning dawn worm and all that and tried something different and it seemed to work well
0: tell me some more i I used to do a little bit of drop shot fishing back in the day and i don't do it as much as i used to uh but kind of tell us tell us more about how you go about drop shot fishing
1: well i mean uh can work on any lake and it's just a matter of trying it and seeing what you can do with it and even on what you follow which you wouldn't think that would be a drop shot lake so much certain times of the year the drop shot can work you know the fall is a good time to do it you can do it in the summer also and even in the spring but it's it's a good uh presentation we cast it out we don't just vertical jig it over the side of the boat now we have done that when it gets colder But right now we're casting it, you know, in in these hard spots off the river and off the creeks and uh, points and stuff like that. And uh, they'll tell you right quick if they want it is is what amounts to. Because, you know, sometimes in the fall, it can get kind of tough sometimes. Or it's not as, uh, I guess, the word predictable or consistent. And so you have to do a little more work this time of year sometimes for sure so on you on your
0: drop shot rig back when i was doing it i think i was using a pretty light like a one-eighth of an ounce weight and just a little little you know standard zoom watermelon worm are you using on that lake fishing a little bit deeper are you using a little bit heavier setup or kind of tell me about that a little bit
1: yeah i like a half ounce i know a lot of people you know will do the light leads, but if you're off and we're fishing deeper points and, and ledges somewhat, and you want to you want to get it down. And I'm not going to say that you can't get the same bite with a lighter lead, but I like to do a half, a half tungsten. I like the tungsten weights. I use those. Go ahead and throw it out there, get it. And then, uh, you know, once that weight hits the bottom, of course, you can adjust the, the leader line you know, from say four or five inches to a foot or even 18 inches, depending on how you want to present it. And then uh, it's all about working it. You know what I mean? Getting the right rhythm and pausing it. And and then you can use your uh, active target. You can use that. And of course, your down scan will show them too. For sure. You can see how they react to it and that kind of stuff.
0: Is, is there a particular soft plastic that, that you prefer that you usually run, or do you just kind of switch them out and just see what sticks?
1: Either finesse worms work good. Sometimes a trick worm, a uh, robo worm is a good worm for drop shot. I like them. But I use a Fluke Stick Junior, the Zoom Fluke Stick, uh, the smaller one. I use it. It's got the little fork tail on it. Have real good luck with it. We'll take the tail and put a little chartreuse on the end of it, on the fork part. It's like they, you know, that's a shad to them. So it's a almost an automatic bite. I used to usually talk about putting
0: that little touch of chartreuse on the tail. I used to do that a lot. I would sit there, and I think uh, it wasn't the fluke stick, but it was like they made a fluke junior or something. I think they still make it. I think that's a popular worm that Zoom puts out, and I've done that here, is take a white or a pearl one and put a little dye on it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You can use the regular fluke, too. This year, I've actually had just the drop shot hook instead of doing the uh like texas rig hook robo hook that you take the barb and go back into the the worm like you would a texas rig right that's what i used to do and i'm experimenting with just a uh open hook you know with the bait and i have to say you know you wouldn't want to do it if you were in heavy cover because you'd get it hung up a lot but i think if you can get away with it that is the way you want to go with that open hook because your bait when you See it in the water, and you you know you just kind of hook it through the head of the bait. The movement that it has, it's just it's not restricted like it would be with the uh, robo hook or whatever in it. And so, if you can get away with it, that's what you want to do. You know, just have the exposed hook because when you set the hook on a drop shot, you're not really leaning on him that hard. You know, sometimes you just want to kind of swing swing the uh, rod uh, into it. You know if you got that open hook it's just a matter of uh, just kind of leaning on the rod a little bit because you know you're fishing with what eight to ten pound leaders what i do with a you know starter with your end of 15 pound braid and then put the fluorocarbon on the end of it so that's kind of how i rig it up is there any particular rod that you
0: prefer fishing you know deep like that with something where you're trying to keep good contact with the bottom because i know that's that was that was what i liked about fishing with a drop shot is it was easy to put, you know, action on a worm, but you also it just felt like I always knew what i was doing like like for me it was easier to tell if i was going over from rock or dragging over a stump or getting up into weeds like i i don't even know why i quit fishing them to tell you the truth i think i kind of got caught up there for a little bit in the whole ned rig thing Just started doing different stuff you can't fish you know all the techniques all the time you kind of go through favorites or i do but i, I
1: enjoyed fishing I, I agree with you 100 percent. i think if you get a rod that's and you want a one that has a good tip you know really a medium heavy you know some rod brands, a medium heavy is a stiffer rod, but you want one that's got really a good limber tip that you can cast it out or work it. I think if you get over seven two, you gotta you know, because they make spinning and I I do it on spinning. I mean, I know you can do it on bait casting outfits, but I think if you get over seven two I the one I use is a seven footer. I think a seven foot spinning rod is is perfect for it. I think if you get too long a rod for a drop shot, there's no advantage to it. You know, it just gets in the way, I think. And
0: and tell me a little bit more. I know I know back in the day I always used to fish spinning reels. That's just what I grew up with. We do down here. My dad did more saltwater stuff than anything because when he moved to Baldwin County, saltwater fishing inshore you know, redfish, speckled trout, that was new and interesting. He grew up kind of on the Alabama River, up around Montgomery. So he, bass fishing was something he had done his whole life. That had kind of lost interest for him. So what's funny is that he did a lot of it as a boy and then moved to saltwater, and I did a lot of saltwater as a boy fishing with spinning reels, and then got bored of that, and I said, well, I want to do the bass fishing thing. But I'm always curious, you know, you got some guys who uh, are kind of baitcaster or die type, and I didn't touch a baitcaster until I was in my 20s because that was the way you were supposed to do it. So I, I throw both now, and I always struggle a little bit. To be honest, most of the time I feel most comfortable with a, with a spinning reel in my hand, and you was talking about throwing a drop shot with a spinning reel, why do you throw it with a spinning reel? And just, I, I think this has be an interesting thing to talk about. If you switch back and forth between them, when in general do you default to that spinning reel and when do you default to a bait caster?
1: Yeah, you've got a better feel with spinning on a drop shot. There's no, I mean, you don't see them. And I'm not saying that everything I do is what the pros do, but the pros, you know, a drop shot, they, they've got a spinning outfit, uh, 99% of them. I mean, you can do a, a bait caster, but it's just, it's not going to be the same feel that that's been an outfit on a drop shot is a you know it, it's the deal there, there there's no uh reason to reinvent the wheel with that you know when you start talking about changing the weights and stuff like that uh you know we're fishing a little deeper on ufaula so the half ounce weight i think matters it gets it on down there you know we're not throwing it in a like five foot. We're, 10, 15, maybe 20, you know what I mean? So that's the reason why we use a a half ounce weight. It seems to, and then of course you can, you can get too big a hook. We hadn't really talked about that, but if you get a, you set your thing up and you've got too big a hook, now that's going to take away from the action of your plastic. So you don't want to get caught there. And I I like the thin wire hooks. Now, Now, if you're in heavy cover or something like that, I understand maybe going to a Bigger hook and so forth. There was a tournament won on uh Seminole early this year, and was one on drop shots. Really? And yeah, he he was fishing that in Spring Creek, and he was doing a, I forget the pro's name. Uh, he wears the cowboy hat, but he he won the tournament. Everybody else was fishing grass. He's throwing the drop shot. You know, it was a I think a morning dawn type worm, best I can remember. But he was he was doing it in uh, heavy timber. But he was using fifteen pound leader, from what I understand, if my memory serves me, and uh, he won the tournament. And I think it was a three day tournament. Sometimes you got to switch it up
0: and try something a little bit different. I know, especially with, with the fall coming in, everything changing. I know
1: that uh, what works can change day by day. Yes, sir. I mean, and that's that's this time of year because uh, just as soon as you get on something, you know, it'll change. The weather's warming up. The water temperature is getting warmer than it was. It, it's amazing. I mean, uh, we were out there today and I think it was, I mean, it's got up close to 80, I think. And the water temperature was like 72, which it had been in the 60s. So it's it's everything's changing. The bait's moving around. Uh, they're, you know, if you don't see bait, the, the fish ain't going to be there. I mean, that's just bottom line. I think we talked about that last time. You know, I have been getting bit on a, a jig and pig. I've been throwing a, a jig and it's been good, but that was mostly up, you know, above the causeway. Tried it. Well, I, I, we got some bikes on it today. As a matter of fact, I caught one or two on it. So uh, a jig is, 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 can be good this time of year. Jig's good anytime, but this time of year it, it can get really good. That's another bait. Then we caught some today on a shaky head. But the drop shot was the winner today is what it was all about. And I think, and if you think about what I'm talking about, shaky head, a jig, well, those are bottom baits. And this time of year, the uh, fish will be suspended off the bottom. So uh, you're uh, working that worm or whatever you're throwing on the drop shot in front of him. You know what I mean? And that can entice a bite that you normally wouldn't get because you're fishing below the fish, if you understand what I'm saying. Oh, for sure. I've I've
0: always, any type of fishing I've always done, it is is much easier to get a fish to feed level or up. And, and it's just about impossible. And I've watched, I've got to sight fish some real clear creeks where you could watch a fish. And it's hard if he's not on the bottom. And this goes for... In, in my limited experience, not just bass, but crappie, panfish, gruntle, bowfin, chain pickerel, redfish, you name it. You, you got me laughing
1: at bowfin. <laughs> i tell you what, some of the biggest spikes I've had was one of bowfin.
0: I fish for a lot of bowfin here because the Delta is loaded with them, and and it's fun to get out there and catch 10-pound 10, 10 bowfin. You said to hook in one of those, and that's a bunch of fun.
1: That's a bull right there. And we got them, trust me. We usually catch them in the spring most of the time. Uh, Every once in a while, you and they pretty much stay shallow. I think the bowfin does all year, pretty much.
0: They do. They they like to be shallow. And in the spring down here, do y'all have you caught them when they get their spawning colors on in the spring? About turkey season down here, they'll be like neon green.
1: You'll be uh you know fishing up the bass are spawning. Uh, everybody's spawning, and and you think you got a big old bass, and it's a freaking bowfin or gurnal <laughs> <grand> or <old water. laughs> of course down in Seminole. You know, I lived in Bainbridge for a couple of years. They call them blackfish. Uh, so it's got a bunch of different names, a bunch of different names, you know, from both ends.
0: There's not a fish that swims got more names. I've heard them called dogfish, cottonfish. All my Louisiana buddies call them, sh- call them shoe pick. Uh huh. Shoe pick. I hadn't heard that one. That's funny. I said, oh, oh shoe pick. That's what they call them. If, if you ca- if you talk to somebody about shoe pick, that's the type of person who don't catch crappie. They catch sack
1: You don't want to lift that one that's for sure
0: no you don't and they will definitely i tell you what they're fun to catch but man they are rough on a spinnerbait Uh, well graz if 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 people want to get with you and if they want to come do some some bass fishing where's a good place to reach out to you
1: you know i'm i got my own website dot com. i'm on facebook and and, uh, ross's guide service and and they can call me at 706-593-4192 text me call me whatever Awesome. Like I say, I got a couple days with the uh, older man and his his uh, uh, son who fish with me back in April. So they, I guess, they didn't get enough of me. They want me for two days this time. <laughs> so anyway, that's going to be tomorrow and Friday. So the weather's beautiful, but um, it seems like you need a little weather change, you know, sometimes to make these fish uh, snap better absolutely well guys if y'all want to get with
0: Graz and, and go do some lake you follow bass fishing uh i reckon he's he's been doing guided trips about longer than anybody else that i'm aware of out there and uh, he's definitely very good at what he does he's a good fisherman he's a good time to be around so y'all go check him out if y'all want to want to book a trip for this fall and Graz, i always enjoy having you on the show and i appreciate your time today sir nick i appreciate it buddy anytime this week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Killer Dock. Today we're going to profile another common form of dock dysfunction dirty dock. Have you ever cleaned up a nice mess of fish and then watched your wife's face in disgust when she sees your dirty dock as a result? It's happened to all of us who are cleaning fish on old, wooden fish cleaning tables that don't slope toward the water. You need dock enhancement. Killer Dock fish cleaning stations are marine-grade aluminum coated with a ceramic finish that makes cleaning your dirty dock a cinch. The scales and slime drain directly into the water, through the legs, or through the slots. You choose the style. Check out the best fish cleaning stations known to mankind at KillerDock.com all righty guys we're back and next up we have Stephen rockarts out there on the cober river system Stephen guides with fly fish in alabama he catches a mean fish and he grows a mean burger Stephen, how you doing today sir
2: i'm doing pretty good i wish i had both of those going on right now a <laughs> good fish and a burger
0: it, it's getting to be about that time in the evening where i'm starting to think about a good burger
2: that's right It's it's getting about that time
0: Well, tell me, Uh, I haven't been able to do, I was on a pretty good fly fishing bender here throughout the course of the spring and the summer. In the past couple of weeks, I've had to slow my roll a little bit, had to actually do a little bit of work so that they'll keep me around here at the office. How's everything looking out there on the Cahaba?
2: It's looking pretty good right now. Um, The bite has slowed down just a little bit with this first little true cold snap. You know, the first week or two doesn't really affect them that much, but now the water temperatures have dropped a little bit, Um, but it should be picking up probably within the next week, Um, you're still good for a good little 10, 15 fish day. But the shad are starting to move up into the mouths of everything. All those bait fish are starting to move up and kind of school up. And I'm pretty sure next week or the week after is going to be pretty doggone good fishing starting in uh, November. They're going to be coming up to the mouths of all those feeder creeks.
0: You're going to have to let me in on the secret. This is my first year fly fishing. I always enjoy in the fall, like you talk about creek mouths, and I'm actually going out tomorrow. If I break away, I'm going I'm to do a little quick morning trip. And I'm going to take me some live shiners, and I'm going to line them up in the mouth of a little creek I got in mind that I was kind of scouting the other day. I seen some fish up in it. What do you do w- with them fish up in the mouth of the creek? What do you what kind of fly are you throwing? What kind of general technique are you using? I know I've done a lot throughout the summer, just kind of bank busting, you know, just, just kind of throwing at the edges of the bank, spotting structure that you can see and throw and edit but on them creek mouths when stuff starts to get a little bit deeper that's not something i've done yet so what's what's your technique for for them creek mouth fish
2: good question so for right now um as long as those bait fish or shad or whatever you want to call them start schooling up which they will they'll start going into creek mouth and before i say any of this information as long we need a rain the next rain we get, once these feeder creeks start getting a little bit of water in them and they start holding some water and they're pushing into the main rivers or creeks, that's really where you're going to see the big difference. Um, and then at that point, the bass are really going to be a little bit more active to school to the mouth of all those creeks and rivers or feeder creeks in the main tributaries. But um, what I typically do, uh, if they're hitting top water, I'll still try a little bit of top water. But most of the time, I just throw like a small, two to three inch clouser or something that it could be white and olive that's an exceptionally productive pattern uh white belly olive back that kind of imitates and then the two to three inches imitates the size of the bait fish that are running up in the mouth of those creeks and trying to get into safe space right now um you can throw something that is that coloration or you can usually get away with something that obnoxiously bright kind of like a white and chartreuse um, or a white and hot pink and if you just throw small little bait fish patterns like that, those will still elicit the bite. You always want to fish, uh, general rule of thumb, uh, anywhere between 50 to 100 feet before you get to the mouth of a feeder creek and then 50 to 100 feet uh, past the mouth of a feeder creek. Fish will typically school uh, in those areas looking for, for bait fish or anything else that may wash out of the mouth of the creek or off the off the bank. And you can still feed the the bank uh, but whenever you get to the mouth of the creek, it depends on if you're in a boat or not. But if you get to the mouth of the creek, I typically start fishing about 15, 20 feet away from the mouth of the creek, and then I'll fan it. I don't know if you're familiar with that technique. Kind of go nine o'clock, ten o'clock, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, and all of that pattern. And then you just scoot up about, you advance every maybe five, ten feet, and just rinse and repeat until you kind of get to the mouth of the creek. Because uh, you're unless you're really familiar with the feeder creek. You don't necessarily know where that feeder creek, the silt line or the dirt line where that feeder creek is drops off into the main river um, unless it's shallow enough to see it. But that's usually where the fish will hold.
0: I got you. Yeah, you can see a lot of times down here because uh, we get so much sediment runoff. Uh, you can definitely see it on these these big feeder creeks to dump into these big rivers down here in the Mobile tensaw Delta. You can see that sediment line real good.
2: That's that's perfect. Then
0: Yeah, we, we was talking to uh Matt Lewis come down here and, and did some uh pickerel fishing with me that was that was something that he observed as he was like oh wow you can really see current seams and stuff like that down here show up real real well or where clear water from a creek mixes with the muddy river water um a lot easier than it is up like i was on Tallapoosa, i guess uh two weeks ago uh doing a little float and uh definitely tougher to see like you was talking about where it transitions and you get that kind of deeper pool definitely harder to spot up there in places like that
2: yeah, that's a lot on the Cahaba right now, too. Um, unless the creeks get a lot of runoff and the Maiden River hasn't uh, changed colors for the season yet, that's about the only time you'll be able to really see the difference. But, yeah, down here, uh, I guess we're in the middle of the state. We're not really down here, but um, everything's pretty much crystal clear right now on the Cahaba. So you can still fish the, um, the mouth of the creek if you want to, uh, and you can still target everything. There'll still be bait fish and everything moving that trajectory. But until we get a little bit of rain, that's not gonna be kind of the hot point. Uh once we get a little bit of rain, as long as it doesn't blow anything out, that's gonna be at least for me, that'll be my main focus all the way through the winter. Um, I fish I fish creek mouse uh exceptionally heavy in the wintertime. And that's usually where I pull my bigger fish, the ones that are anywhere between um eighteen and twenty something inches.
0: When you're throwing you talk about throwing like clouds or minnows, weighted minnows and stuff like that. Um mm-hmm. Do you upsize your rod? What size rod and what size fly line are you usually using to chuck those out there? Because I know that's something I'm trying to get ready for is I know fish move a little bit deeper and and weighted flies are going to get a little little bit more important here in a little bit. So I've been looking at picking up a rod. What would you recommend for flies like that?
2: Um, I, you know, I stick with, um, there's a local company uh, called Calico Fly Rods in Alabama, and they, they make a really good rod. Not only that, but they support all the tributaries that the rods are named after. So if you get a Cahaba rod, money goes back to the Cahaba, a large percentage of your purchase. And then if you get a Coosa rod, a large percentage of that goes back to the River Keepers. If you get a Talapuza rod, that goes back to the, the organization they're trying to build. You know, But I use those rods personally, and I typically go anywhere between a six-weight and an eight-weight. I'm not scared about throwing something a little bit too small on an eight weight. Uh, it just depends on your leader at that point And then what type of line you have. So if you're fishing kind of shallow, you can still use um, a floating line or intermediate line. If you're going to fish a little bit deeper, uh, Oh, and excuse me, and your, your leader for that floating or, or intermediate line can be um, nylon or mono. If you're fishing a little bit closer to the surface, because mono is a little bit more buoyant, but if you're going to be trying to push it down real deep, You may want to either build your own leaders out of fluorocarbon and then use a sinking line or a sink tip line. I usually use sink tip 10. That seems to get me to where I need it to be on my rivers, but that can kind of help you push it down a little bit deeper as the water levels come up. Uh, When it comes to fly selection, the smaller flies that I uh, mentioned are fantastic but when it does get you know a little bit colder <clears throat> and we start seeing those water levels rise two and three feet and they stay steady and the watercolor turns into that winter green that you or emerald that you're used to seeing i do upsize significantly mostly just to get the active hungry feeding fish that'll feed for about a month or month to three months before pre-spawn because you know that's that's the time of the year to catch your big fishes in the winter um, I typically don't take trips in the winter though, because that's my favorite time to fish and you're on, you're not guaranteed a lot of fish. You may not even catch a fish, but when you do catch fish, you're catching nothing but trophies. But I do upscale my size to maybe be three and a half to five inches long. And then I've got my own little special flies that I won't mention on here that I like to use. <laughs>
0: and there we go. There we go. It's funny what you say about catching the big fish. Cause I know uh, down here on, on the Mobile Tensor Delta, I do a lot of catfish and we have a real good catfish fishery and, And the big blue cats, like if you want to catch 50-plus pound blue cats, uh, that's the time to do it. Because you won't, like you said, you won't catch near as many fish. You may go a whole day and not catch anything. Or you may run limb lines or whatever it is that you're doing. Like your hookup rate goes down. Total number of fish caught goes down. But when you do get a hold of one, he'll be worth taking pictures of.
2: I know. I love catfishing.
0: Hey, you ever uh you ever catch any on the fly rod up there? Y'all got catfish on the Cahaba River? I'm sure you do. Y'all got it seems like the Cahaba would be a good flathead fishery, really rocky like that. It seems like flatheads like stuff like that.
2: We do have some flatheads in there. Um I've never caught a catfish on the fly up there. I've only ever caught one catfish on the fly rod and it was probably around forty five pounds. It was an interesting catch because I was I was essentially running the bottom of this this neighborhood lake. And, um, with the massive, like eight inch fly and I was just testing it out and I was just running it, running it, running it, getting used to casting it. I basically foul hooked like a 45 pound cat, blue catfish out of this pond. I didn't anticipate it, but, um, it gave me a hell of a fight. Bought for about six minutes, and then started barrel rolling at the bank and rolled itself up in the line. I had caught it right about above the top of the jaw, so maybe it was trying to eat it, but maybe not. But it's still foul hook nonetheless. But long story short, that puppy snapped that rod in half so fast. (laughs) when i got it to the bank and it barrel rolled on me I,
0: I tell you what too any anytime you foul hook one because we we foul hook here occasionally i've foul hook like um spoonbill and stuff like that like that's just a any anybody who fishes long enough down here ends up foul hooking a spoonbill but you foul hook a fish and he feels twice as big as he is so i'm sure that 45 pound fish i was when you said that you hooked up on a 45 pounder on a fly rod i was like that had to have been a stout fly rod
2: It was huge. It was a six-weight. It handled the fish well (laughs) until I got it to the bank.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. That's a good story. I like it. I like it. Well, Stephen, if if folks want to get a hold of you, if folks want to book a trip, uh, what's a good good way to reach out to you?
2: Right. Thanks for asking. Um, You can either look up www.flyfishingalabama.com. Or you can look up uh, fly fishing Alabama on Instagram or Fly Fishing Alabama LLC on Facebook, and uh, we'll get you taken care of. We got smallmouth mouth fisher uh, anglers and uh, our guides, and we got another guide that does special red eye trips and custom trips like that, and then and then me as well. And I I kind of do the a run of the mill. So yep, you can reach out that way. I appreciate it.
0: There we go. Absolutely, folks. Y'all definitely be sure to check out Stephen's guide service and Stephen. As always, I appreciate having you on the show.
2: Absolutely, thank you so much.
0: This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by l and Marine. l and Marine has something for everyone, from small hunting boats to pontoon boats to bigger bay boat and offshore hybrids. l and Marine LLC prides itself on its customer service and knows how important it is to be taken care of and to have someone you can trust. They are locally owned and regularly support the surrounding community l m Marine provides superior customer service and has an entire team that consists of professional sales members, finance experts, service technicians, and a knowledgeable parts and accessories staff to fully support you. Go visit their friendly, reliable, and experienced staff today. LM m Marine is located six miles north of I-10 at 34600 Highway 59 in Stapleton, Alabama. You can also reach them by phone at 251 937 one three eight zero all righty guys we're back and for our final guest this week we have bob mallard bob is the executive director of the native fish coalition um, he's also a former fly shop owner he's a registered Maine fishing guide um, and he is a fairly prolific author and a freelance writer he's written several books one that i have uh, earmarked that i need to pick up is one on brook trout uh, that he wrote here a while back bob glad to have you on the show Tell me a little bit for the listeners who may not be familiar, what is Native Fish Coalition?
3: Well, we um, first thank you for having me. We we formed up in Maine to protect, to provide some additional protection for wild native brook trout. One of the groups that had been doing the most um, to conserve, preserve these fish, they kind of had an executive director change that kind of dropped out of the game and created a void. So, Myself and two others, um, a gentleman named Tom Dickens, young man, and a woman named Emily Bastion formed uh, what was at the time Native Fish Coalition of Maine. And our primary focus was on brook trout in Maine. Uh, Maine's the stronghold for brook trout. I have a, a feature story in Fly Fishing Fly Fisherman magazine right now. But you know, one thing that's unique about Maine is that uh, Mainers love their brook trout. Um, when you hear the term trout up here, trout alone, it means brook trout. When somebody talks about a non-brook trout, they call it a brown trout or a rainbow trout. But if it's just trout, it's a brook trout. So Mainers love their brook trout. And and that is part of what makes, uh, you know, it can be, makes it easier up here because we're not fighting that trend toward non-native and heavily stocked uh, trout. So that's where we started. And uh, since then, you know, we are 18 states deep, uh, pretty much contiguous footprint from Maine to Alabama, actually from Maine to Arkansas as of last week. We, uh, we are dealing with game species, non-game species, salmonids, uh, non salmonids We branched off in so many directions now. It is truly what the name says it is, native fish.
0: So, and and I have an interest as a, as a fairly new fly fisherman. Uh, it's on my short list to to make it up into some of the states a little bit north of us, try to hit the Smokies, and try to find some of those native brook trout. And you you talk about it starting to preserve brook trout, and I I regret to say there are no brook trout down here in Alabama. So how did Alabama end up with a native fish coalition?
3: We got approached first by New Hampshire, neighboring New Hampshire, and. In- Uh, Once we got this thing up and going and and it was getting some press and getting support, uh, folks in New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, you know, different neighboring states chimed in. So we said we were going to grow this thing, but we were going to grow it contiguously, geographically, uh, because we, you know, this concept of leapfrogging states just seemed odd to us. When a gentleman named Matthew Lewis, contacted me about how there was a lack of organized support for red-eye bass in um, Alabama. And uh, so Matt is solely responsible for bringing us south and taking what was a quantum, non-contiguous leap from New England to Alabama. And he got my attention because I had a stint as a writer, a regular columnist for uh Online publication called Southern Trout, now defunct. My I had the honor of being the only Yankee affiliated with the publication, which they reminded me of quite frequently. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, referring to the Great Civil War as the War of Northern Aggression, and uh, but they uh, they referred to uh, Red Eye as as Alabama Brook Trout, and. Uh, when I started seeing pictures of where they live and started seeing pictures of the fish, we have a lot of bass, smallmouth, largemouth, none of which are native. But I did my fair share of bass fishing. But when I started seeing this red eye habitat, it fascinated me. I was like, "Wow, this is right on the edge. This is looks like brook trout habitat, but it's a little warm. It's not really smallmouth habitat because a little cold." And so. Uh, you know, we dove right in and fully supported Matt, who has obviously, you know, wrote the book on red eye and does a lot of genetic work. And so that's how we we get in the deep south. And, uh, you know, you don't get a whole lot further away on the East Coast than you do between Maine and Alabama.
0: For sure, for sure. Now, we, we've had Matt on the show a couple times, and I've had the pleasure of fishing with him. He's working on a, another book. He came down here and, and and fished with me in a, the Mobile Tensile Delta. I put him on some pickerel. He hadn't caught a pickerel before, and I'm happy to say I was able to put him on several that day. Definitely a good guy. And, uh, yeah, he, he turned me on to the Bama Brook trout, and I've I've had a, a awesome time doing it. So I, I think that's cool that that partnership happened. Kind of give me some more information so you talk about the native fish coalition why why i guess why native fish um and and like you you were talking about how you know largemouth bass weren't native up there i know that when bass fishing got got popularized bass ended up in a lot of places right they ended up in california they ended up in japan like there was a bass fishing craze took the whole fishing world by storm and we talk with bass anglers every week on the show i'm going bass fishing tomorrow morning i love catching bass and and we have a lot of fishing opportunities here, and you know bass are definitely not starving for any type of support, whether it be financial or conservation, or the, the the bass will be the last fish that that we lose if we start losing more fish. Kind of tell me what what do you guys do? Like where did where did you come at as far as is naming it instead of you know just the Brook Trout Coalition? Why why Native Fish Coalition?
3: You know we had. Um... Even though our focus is brook trout, we also had a secondary focus on Arctic char. Maine has the last um, Arctic char in the contiguous United States. And uh, we have 12 populations left down from, you know, well under half of what we had historically. So, you know, by calling it native fish, we, um, we gave it, uh, we left ourselves open to some growth. Uh, we also, it would have been too easy to call it You know, our focus was on native brook trout, not non-native brook trout. Brook trout in Montana or Wyoming are as impactful, negatively impactful, as brown trout are in New England. And so we wanted to make sure that we didn't drift off into brook trout for the sake of brook trout. Because of the the non-native issue, and it is an issue it hits a lot of different things. I mean, we got non-native plants ruining our waterways. We got non-native birds. We got non-native bugs. I mean, geez, uh, it just seems to be never ending. And our uh, watersheds are being pounded with fish introductions. And years ago, I um, had a conversation, a series of articles with BASS, who I give a lot of credit to. I always tell people, um, uh, Trout guys could learn a lot from BASS. They've made it, uh, I always say, how we took a bunch of rural guys and got them to release their fish is beyond me. We can't do that with our trout guys. And uh, so they've done incredibly um, important things. And, and to, so that model has always been there. And, and bass are good of sport where they belong. But one of the discussions we had with them, we tried to get them to speak up against moving bass into, into native trout water because it's, it's over, you know, basket in a uh, you know, a brook trout pond or a river or stream. And, you know, it's a, it's a long, slow death, but it is a death for the brook trout. And so, you know, this whole idea that, that anyone wins this game is crazy. Uh, years ago, I said to the bass folks, uh, we need your help. Um, You know, we're losing our brook trout like crazy. And there was a reluctance to speak up against, you know, the movement of bass. And not that they didn't agree that it was a bad thing, but it was kind of, you know, a bad idea to get out and vocalize that. And my point with them was, you're next because there's these another group of anglers that likes a bigger, meaner, toothier fish than your bass. And they're called pike and muskies. And when the boys stop moving, pike, and it is us, I tell people, don't blame anybody but us. It's sportsmen. We're doing this. So when these pike show up on your bass water, after your bass shot, you know, chase my trout out, you lose too. And so... In a game with no winner, the best thing we can do is stop that game. Because if we don't, we're going to end up with some weird monoculture fishery uh, of low numbers. Because the bigger and meaner the fish get, the fewer of them there are. And so, you know, that was that's what's happening all across America. You know, we've got issues with hybridization with bass now within bass Country because somebody moved, you know, Alabama on top of Shoal or whatever, and Red Eye are, are, are hybridizing. And, you know, the Rocky Mountains have all but lost, you know, Montana, uh, all those big-name trout fisheries, uh, very few of them are native cutthroat fisheries. They're all, you know, rainbows and browns, and, and you know, the cuts are hybridized right out of business. And so it's – uh and it disrupts so many other things. It's uh, – we are – far too accepting of non-native fish. I, I say, would we be this accepting of like fallow deer running around the Maine woods? Uh, you know, probably not. And that's what's kind of unique about New England is uh, we don't have feral hogs. You know, we don't have um, pheasants, uh, naturalized pheasants. We have uh, roughed grouse and white-tailed deer and brook trout. And there's something really special about that. That's, you know, sporting in its finest, purest form. When you're hunting and fishing for what belongs there, you know, nobody put it there. It was put there by somebody bigger than all of us. And uh, so, you know, to live that and and to see that I don't have to go far before I lose that. I would go one state over and, and I'm already in trouble, you know, two or three states and I'm in big trouble. I can't find a brook truck. So that's, you know, what this native fish movement is about. It's more than just native fish. It's native, you know, flora and fauna. You know, I can bugger up a bass pond pretty easily by moving in milfoil on my prop, uh, Eurasian milfoil, choke it out. Uh, So, you know, it's a big, big problem. And it's a problem sportsmen need to face head on.
0: For sure. Something that we have down here, like some of the species that you named, you know, like like where I'm... 45 minute drive from Florida, and Florida is just ground zero for so many non-natives that have come up out of the out of the the kind of Central American region and are just kind of slowly seems to be progressing north. Um, you know, pythons, you have snake heads, there's different species of chameleon tree frog. Um, you know, I know I know snakehead, you you were talking about a bigger, toothier fish. It's hard to imagine a bigger toothier fish moving into your water than a snakehead. Talk about stuff moving in with props down here. We have a big issue with zebra mussels. Um, we've had issues with apple snails, hogs, obviously. And and something I like that you said is that, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with any species, right? They're all cool when when they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. You know, like you said, you if you take an Alabama bass and you move him where he's not supposed to be, then he becomes a problem. But where he's supposed to be now, you know, that's a beautiful native fish. Like any any fish can be a native fish. Any any fish can be a problematic non-native fish. You know, hogs. I, I tell people all the time, it's like, well, man, if if hogs aren't native at this point in the southeast, then we definitely aren't. You know, because we both showed up here at the same time. Like at, at this point, it's hard to be mad at them. And I and I think. That's something you see a lot is that sometimes you'll you'll see like smear campaigns against certain fish. There's people that have a certain disdain for for rainbow trout or or wild hogs or or spotted bass or whatever it may be. Um, That's something that I like talking with Matt Lewis. You know, he has had problems... Uh, with with his babies, with his red-eye bass, he'll say that there are certain river systems where it's really hard to find, like, a true Bartram's bass. Um, and I've sent him some pictures, I and mean, he's been like, yeah, that's a hybrid. He's like, you can call it a red-eye bass if you want to, but that one's got a lot of spotted bass in him. Um, and, and he really doesn't have anything against spotted bass. Like, he came down here you know, he'll, he'll catch Choctaw bass and stuff like that. He's like, I don't have a problem with them. He's like, as long as they stay where they're at and somebody's not moving them in water where they're not supposed to be, you know? So I think it's one of those issues, I think, in the sporting world where a lot of people kind of know of the problem, but I guess there's so many different problems that you can focus on, you know, clean air, clean water, reduced access to hunting land, stream pollution and stuff like that. It seems like the native fish issue kind of gets put on back burner. So I'm definitely, I was happy to find out about the organization from Matt and see that there are people who were kind of trying to put that emphasis on, you know, enjoying the fish that you have. I think is a big deal. I know that's a lot of the times that was why fish got introduced is people were like, whoa, this is a more aggressive, sportier fish. You know, like I enjoyed, I fished for them here in this state and I enjoyed them when I went on vacation and I think I'm gonna bring some back in. I think it's good that, uh, we're finally realizing maybe that's not the best way to go about enjoying a day on the water.
3: I mean, it's, you know, this is the biggest battle we have is explaining to our fellow man that this isn't that Bob Mallard doesn't like rainbow trout or largemouth bass. It's that, um, you know, you put me down south and give me a, a baitcaster and a spinner bait, I'll chase bass all day. And uh, the issue is, that it's a losing game. I can't explain enough, you know. and, and it's, we have to place some level of blame on state fish and game with the hatchery systems and some of the things that they promoted for years. The feds were guilty as charged. They moved fish all over the place at one point. But you know, in addition to the movement of these game fish, then we get into the movement of bait fish, either fish for them or, for, or to provide forage, And the next thing you know, we're reclaiming a uh, a pond, a lake, because it's overrun with, you know, whether it's golden shiner or uh, emerald shiner or whatever, and uh, so it just seems like we're spending a whole lot of money and a whole lot of time um, fixing what we break, and more so than ever in my life. So maybe a better strategy would be stop breaking stuff, and and uh, you know, it's and what we're seeing which is quite interesting i'm 65 years old i didn't think i'd live long enough to see what i'm seeing right now but we're seeing young people young sportsmen highly skilled uh, uh, very committed they're putting a lot of time into their their chosen sport and um, they are seeking out native fish now these kids are are not following the stocking truck Uh, these are young boys with with flat brim trucker hats tattoos and big beards and you know they're they're heading into the back country chasing uh, red eye and chasing brook trout and chasing cutthroat and I talked to them all the time like what happened who did this you know how did how did we somehow accidentally start changing this paradigm that existed my whole life and it's crowding it's a better understanding of ecological enlightenment whatever you want to call it uh, they get it. They've seen in a, in a very short window, you know, the collapse of a whole lot of, um, of our environment. And, uh, you know, they, they don't want that fresh out of the truck fish, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a, a whole movement with these, you know, this, um, cutthroat slam, red eye slam. And, you know, these are, uh, this is popular stuff. And the beauty of it is, you know, this is putting focus on what is there, what's supposed to be there. It don't cost us a nickel to manage that stuff. Just leave it alone and give it a little protection. We don't have to have hatcheries. We don't have to have half. A, you know, now we can take that money and put it into habitat work and land acquisition and infrastructure. So this is a really good movement. And it, as I said, you know, and the difference between today's young sportsmen and when I was that age We were generalists, and I used to joke, we did everything, but we probably weren't real good at anything. Um, We had to trap fish, spin fish, bait fish, ice fish, you know, on and on. Rabbits, you know, you, you just did what you did. But the new sportsman is more focused. They're more likely to do one thing super well, or maybe a couple things super well. And, uh, you know, they might be an upland game hunter with dog and, uh, and a trout fly guy, or maybe they're a red eye and uh, and whatever. So, you know, this is a big change and it's a good change. You know, it's kind of like we're fixing rather than the old guys leading the charge and fixing the problem with, you know, some exceptions. Uh, this thing's being driven by the, from the bottom up, which is quite fascinating. You know, Matt, myself, others, we provide guidance and, uh, and direction and answer questions. But, you know, these are young people out there and uh, that are doing it. The rank and file NFC is way, you know, is half my age or less. I got members, board members, 15 years old. And, the, what I see there that kind of disturbs me is we've just spent, you know, the last 40 years grousing about bleeding out our youth and and having, you know, losing the young sportsmen. And, you know, here we are providing, you know, a home for these young sportsmen that we've been telling the world we want for so long. and And then some people beat up the movement. I'm going, wait a minute, you know, this is the movement you said you wanted. You know, we've been chasing kids now. For 40 years, trying to get them back involved, stay involved. And if, you know, native fish is what they want, give them native fish.
0: I'll say that I've I've noticed that getting into fly fishing. I would say just as far as right here and now, that and duck hunting are probably the two aspects of the sport. If you look into like the traditional hook and bullet thing, you know, not getting into backpacking and skiing, mountain biking, stuff like that. Like, yeah, the hunter hunting is an is a older demographic as a whole. Um, always has been. It's been getting steadily, steadily older, and it's caused a lot of, of issues. I know here in the home state, uh, here in Alabama, once you hit 65, you're no longer required to purchase a hunting license, which causes all kind of problems with Pittman-Robertson funds and stuff like that. And, and yeah, my whole life I've heard, well, you know, take a kid fishing, take a kid fishing, take a kid hunting. We want kids involved. We want kids involved. And I started noticing it several years ago that you started to see that demographic you were talking about, the kids with the flat-billed caps and the beards and uh, tattoos, you know, not necessarily uh, traditional-looking outdoorsmen. And you started seeing, you know, kids with gauges and stuff like that and hunting waiters show up at your your local duck hunting hole. It's it's interesting because on one hand, you know, I was like, well, man, that's exactly – that's awesome that's great you know like like it's cool to see these kids here I'm fairly young myself and when you start seeing people younger than me at 30 you know you start seeing teenagers and kids in their their 20s you know it's awesome but I've noticed on a lot of the local groups that we have and talking with buddies there's a lot of resentment and them young guys start moving in I, I was talking with a guy last year he said man I'm about to quit duck hunting he said you just can't These kids, man, they get out there and they'll be spending the night in their boat to go shoot two wood ducks. You know, they'll have all their buddies and they'll be hooping and hollering over that handful of ducks. And it's like, well, wait a second. I've heard you tell stories. That's what you used to do. You know, you and your gang that you ran with, y'all used to be a major pain to to the older fellas that mentored you. So I've noticed in the fly fishing community, too, you see that. Like if you get on YouTube, you don't see that many YouTube hunting channels that are produced by you know, teens, people in their early twenties, college age students and stuff like that. But the fishing crowd seems to be younger than the hunting crowd. And the fly fishing community definitely seems to trend a little younger, especially here in recent years, which I think is encouraging, you know.
3: You know, I, I used to, well, I still do a lot of presentations and everything from rod and gun clubs to Trot Unlimited chapters to, you know, fishing groups. And, uh, I've been doing it 20 years and, uh, You know, in my mid 40s, I'd be in a group of sportsmen speaking and I'd look around the room. I'd go, damn, I'm the youngest man in here and I'm 45. I'd say, we are in trouble. And that continued uh, when I got 50, you know, boom, I'm still the youngest guy in the room. I go to an Atlantic Salmon Club at 60. I'm the youngest guy in the room. And so, you know, this is a bad trend uh, because there's a lot of hunting and fishing. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. You know, we tax the resource, but we also provide support, the resource. And and so, you know, the issue is, um, you know, if you lose lose your sportsman, and I do think we can make some changes and some concessions and compromises. However, if we lose it, you know, what are these kids going to do? I mean, I think there's a reason why we've got substance abuse up and uh, crime and stuff. And, and it's because, you know, these young kids, they're not engaged in anything. Um, I won't say we didn't get in trouble because we did, but we didn't do some of the things they do today. And, uh, you know, when you talk about old guys grousing about, you know, some young kids making noise in a boat, I am guilty as charged. When I was a young man, you know, I brought a, a boombox into the woods, and I'm sure them old guys down across the pond, last <laughs> thing they wanted to hear was Leonard Skinner at 1230, and, you know, at night. And uh, But you don't think about it at the time, but, you know, later on you think about it. But, I, you know, like you, I'm, I'm the one to say to some of these old fellows, like, come on now, you know, we did that. I drove my truck through streams and stuff that I won't, shouldn't have been doing because I didn't know any better. So let's educate those kids. Let's say, hey, kids, by the way, you know, dial it back a little bit, please. And we're trying to sleep over here. The ducks ain't coming in as long as you're yapping away. So, you know. It's- There's definitely,
0: I've I've had to retort to a few guys. They're like, oh, man, these kids, they just got no manners. And they don't know what they're doing. And it's like, well, I wonder where they learned that from. You know, <laughs> like, who, who taught them that or who didn't teach them? And, and yeah, I have, I have tried as a young buck myself. You know, I luckily had to wear I had some good mentors, but then I uh, some good mentors. But I also realized kind of young that I had uh, free time and energy in spades. I had an excess of go get it and just didn't know what I was doing. And, and I found a few guys who uh, didn't have quite as much energy. And, and they were happy if you had somebody who would help them drag a deer mm-hmm. or throw some duck decoys. You get a good synergy there. And, I, and that's something that I wish that you saw more of is is marrying a little bit of that uh, unbridled enthusiasm with, with a little of the more mature wisdom. I think that would be a win for everybody. So it's definitely interesting. I could talk about that all night. Unfortunately, we do have some some time constraints with the show. But before we log out, I think that's the thing that a lot of our listeners would be interested in is, is kind of learning more about the native fish that we have here in Alabama, um, learning more about some of the less publicized game fish that are available to people in different fisheries. Uh, if people wanted to learn more about that, if they want to learn more about the Native Fish Coalition and kind of what you guys are doing um, in Maine and in Alabama and in all the other states, that you function in, where's a good place for them to learn more?
3: Uh, nativefishcoalition.org. We have an extensive website. Every state has their own page. We have campaigns, blogs. Uh, we got Facebook pages for most chapters. If you want, have a question, info at nativefishcoalition.org. That goes to me. I answer every question personally, and, uh, or I offload to somebody smarter than me when, when it's out of my wheelhouse. But, you know, this is something that's real. It's happening. It's uh, I don't see it going away. I think that you know we're also seeing some issues where, you know some of these non-native uh, fisheries are collapsing for reasons we don't fully understand. The west brown trout out west are in trouble. most of where they are. everybody's scratching their head. What happened? what What's wrong with my brown trout? And uh, we're seeing some evidence with a changing climates that, up uh, northeast where it appears that brook trout are adapting better to changes than some of the non-native trout. So maybe like War of the Worlds, the old movie there, maybe the natives will um, persevere somehow. Maybe there's something to this stuff. Maybe whoever designed this thing knew what they were doing.
0: Absolutely. I, I think about that a good bit with our local Grinnell population when you when you find that fossil records indicate that the same Grinnell have been swimming in the swamps down here since the Jurassic era. That's an encouraging thought. Whatever happens to to the watershed down here, it's it survived worse things than yeah. a couple of coal ash ponds or some saltwater intrusion or, or a little sediment runoff. That's an encouraging thought, which can be in, in rare supply some days, it feels like, with everything going on in the world. But uh, Bob, I definitely appreciate having you on the show. Uh, everybody listening in, if that's something that you're interested in, be sure to check out Native Fish Coalition and, uh, Bob, I look forward to hopefully talking with you some more in the future.
3: Absolutely. we got a lot to talk about.
0: This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Bucks Island. Bucks Island is a family owned and operated business since 1948. They have new pontoon boats, bass boats, bow riders, and aluminum boats for sale. They love trade-ins for boats and motors. They can rig your boat or ship your new motor anywhere in the United States. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. They have factory trained and certified technicians. Visit them at 4500 Highway 77, Southside, Alabama, 35907 zip code, or give them a call at (laughs) 256-442-2588. Well, folks, that wraps up this week's Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. If you'd like for us to email you the podcast, just text FISHING to 314-665-1767. Again, just text the word FISHING to 314-665-1767. Subscribe to our email list, and we'll send you the new show each week this week's alabama freshwater fishing report has been brought to you by mallard bay book your next guided hunting or fishing trip with thoroughly vetted guides or charters plan trips buy gear go experience mallardbay.com and brought to you by fish bites whether you're hitting the sand with set rigs or fishing the flats and marshes for speckled trout, redfish, and flounder, Fish Bites has something for you. Check out the full line of scented saltwater and freshwater baits at fishbites.com. And by Southeastern Pond Management. Since 1989, Southeastern Pond Management has been a leader in pond and lake management services. Schedule an obligation-free consultation today. Call one 888 830-POND or info at sepond.com and brought to you by Ellen and Marine has something for everyone from small hunting boats to pontoons to bigger bay and hybrid boats for the hardcore angler. You can visit them at 34600 Highway 59 in Stapleton, Alabama or give them a call at 251-937-1380. And brought to you by Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks manufacture a variety of metal roofing systems to meet your needs. Whether you're putting a new roof on your home or sheeting a commercial building, they have you covered. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters. And by Hilton's Real-Time Navigator, bringing you the highest quality online satellite fishing charts since 2004. Your source for sea temps, alimetry, currents, and watercolor at Hilton'sOffshore.com. Also brought to you by Hayabusa. Hayabusa Fishing, extremely well known for their premium sabiki rigs, but also don't forget their full line of saltwater hooks and jigs as well as freshwater bass hooks. See what you've been missing at HayabusaFishing.com.